Welcome back to the Heming Brainiac list. Halen Farewell, Book 2, Chapter 19. My prompt today was <laughs> Pokemon cards. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking about, like, this bloody book. Like, uh, he's just going on and on about this thing, you know, about Catholics versus Protestants. Um, and kind of, he's not really getting anywhere under the surface with it either. Like, he's not, there's no depth to the conversation. I feel like he, he feels like he's being really intelligent, but not, he's not really. He's just kind of beating around the bush, I guess, not saying anything. Um, it also feels like it's, just it's like he's having a debate but just there are folks on the other side of the debate the characters in the book who are you know he's talking to or interacting with are just sort of talking heads that he that can reflect you know that he can negate their their points so he's it's just himself talking to himself and not even really making a point. Um, I feel like he thinks that, you know, this is, you know, having this intellectual debate about religion is the path to success. And success to him looks like people saying, you know, that he's brilliant and worthwhile. And I was thinking about how, like... I don't know. Pokemon cards. There's like hundreds and hundreds of Pokemon, and they've all got funky names, right? And there's people that have remembered or memorized like a thousand different Pokemon's names. And each one of those Pokemon is, you know, belongs to a, a like a class, like fighting type, water type, fire type, you know. Uh, and then they've got attributes and they've got skills They've got skill points. They've got like uh, moves that they can do and those have different characteristics. And like it's a really complex scoring system. So just, you know, if you even if you, like let alone having to memorize hundreds and hundreds of names of Pokemon, there's all these statistics that go along with them. So my point is you could study Pokemon for decades. Right, and there is probably people who have, and they're so good at Pokemon. Um, but to someone who doesn't give a shit about Pokemon, like they could talk to you for, you know, 20 hours in depth about different Pokemon. And to them, just going on and on and on and talking about all these different aspects. And to you, it's just, all it is is like Pokemon. You know, it never. It's never more interesting than just, oh yeah, cool, Pokemon, little cute critters, whatever. <clears throat> That's what this book is, like, it's just, like, it's in, like, I don't even know if it is interesting to him, but he just kind of feels like, oh, you know, there's people that have had great success from Pokemon cards, and there's people that have made millions of dollars from it, and that means, like, you know, it's a valid thing, it's a, it's a real interesting, valid topic, but... You know, no, I just don't, I just don't give a shit about Pokemon cards. I don't care how complex 
or in-depth you go, I don't care if you're the smartest Pokemon genius in the world, I just don't care about the topic, and that's this. Um, but also at the same time, I feel like he's not much of a Pokemon genius, this guy. He's actually kind of shit at it. <laughs> so it's just, it's just drivel. It's just religious drivel. I can't bear it. Tegrific says, at this point, it is just self-congratulatory logoria. I'm counting the days until this whole nightmare is over. What a sad book to end this excellent reading journey with. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with you, Tech. Like, it is so disappointing that this is the last book on the list. Um, it's easily the worst book on the list. I would, I, I don't think anyone would argue with that. And, um, yeah, it's a real shame we saved it till last. I guess we can be thankful that we didn't read it first, because I imagine if we read it first, <laughs> there would have been, excuse me, by the way, there would have been so much doubt among us about should we continue this like is are all the books going to be like this um and might have put a whole different uh, lens on the experiment anyway that was my discussion prompt today uh pokemon cards oh excuse me oh sleepy let's keep reading i think we might be up to the last chapter in this book yeah we are okay and it's not particularly long either it's not exactly short but um cool so that once we finish this chapter we are two-thirds of the way through the book although looking at the progress bar i can see that it looks like we're more than two-thirds of the way through the book we're probably more like three quarters of the way through the book so that's good chapter 20 in what part of london do you think of settling john eglinton asked as we passed out of the library I haven't given the matter a thought, I answered. Excuse me. The fireman accosted John in the vestibule and we waited till the last stragglers had passed out and the great doors were closed. Would you care for a walk down the Pembroke Road and back by Northumberland Road over the Canal Bridge before going to bed? Of course I should. I haven't been out all day, but... You're tired? No, I'm not tired. And in the hope that he would not speak again of my departure from Ireland... I fell into his step, a little annoyed with myself, however, for I had not spoken truthfully when I said I haven't given the matter a thought. I had even written to Tonks, asking him to look out for a house for me, and he had found a house that would suit me in Swan Walk. His letter was in my pocket, and during my walk with John I could read in my thoughts. You had better come over and see it at once, for it is one of those houses that do not remain long without a tenant. I remarked, whenever the conversation dropped, I shall have to warn all my friends in London of my coming, and when John bade me good night, I returned to Eli Place, determined to answer Tonks's letter before going to bed. But something held me back, and turning from the writing table, I said, tomorrow morning, and every morning after breakfast from that day on, I was held back whenever... I approached the writing table with the intention of writing to Tonks, and it may have been to get the house in Swan Walk behind me that I wrote to Dujarin, who is always looking forward to seeing me in an apartment in Paris with five or six rooms and enough wall space for my pictures and pleasant armchairs in which we could sit smoking cigars and discussing the source of the Christian River. A few weeks later he wrote saying he had discovered the needed apartment 
and would I come over at once? My trouble, said I to myself, has been transferred from London to Paris. I must write to the landlord of number four Eli Place, telling him that I intend to give up the house at the end of the lease, but halfway across the carpet on my way to the writing table I was stopped by an inexplicable apathy, and feeling a little scared went out for a walk and brooded on Rome and Canterbury. There are past moments that retain the sensual conviction of the present moment, and one of these is the September evening of which I am speaking, a dark evening. I was under the trees at the corner of the Appian Way. I must have come through the Clyde Road, admiring as I passed the tall pillared porticos which give the villas a certain elegance and the lofty trees, elms, beeches, dense chestnuts and dark hollies amid which the villas stand. In my humour it was a sort of solace to stop and to remember Ortil, the Rue de Ranelagh exists, doesn't it? Elle danse la rue de Assomption et pas. Some such random association of names may have caused me to keep to the left in the direction of Upper Lisande Street, where it may have been that I kept on that way because the Tyrols lived there before they went to the Klonske. I'm aware of that dark September night on at the corner of the Appian Ways, as I am of the moment I am now living, the sky grey above the trees and the sycamore leaf fluttering down from the great bow to my feet, and myself yielding to a vague feeling of apprehension, stepping aside to avoid treading on it, and it was immediately after the fall of that leaf that temptation rose again, coming up as it were out of my very bowels. Yet the temptation was not of a woman or any part of a woman, but a desire to enter the Irish church in the sense of identifying myself with it. Hitherto, my desire had been merely to dissociate myself from a church which I deemed shameful, whereas I was now conscious of a desire of unity with a church in sympathy with my religious aspirations, to some extent. But I had promised the colonel not to declare myself a Protestant, meaning thereby I could... I would not write to the papers on the subject, nor call Dublin together to hear a lecture on the incompatibility of literature and dogma. But my promise to the colonel, I said, keeps me out of St. Patrick every Sunday, for me to be seen there every Sunday would be equivalent to a declaration of Protestantism, and to be kept out of my cathedral is a great privation, for I should like to go there occasionally, and to pray with the congregation, to pray to whom I know not. But I should like to pray. A little later I found myself standing before a tall iron gate, peering through the bars, admiring some gold tassels, golden rod, I said, and the borders, I am sure, are blue with lobelia. Uh, a sudden scent of honey warned me that the Arabis was there in plenty, and I walked on, thinking of a dense cushion of pure white flowers, till my steps were again stayed, and this time it was by the sight of Dash. The tree seemed like a quince, but the quince does not bear pink and white blossom. A bell-shaped blossom, like a mallow, it was on my way. Uh, but neither tree nor shrub flowers at the end of August, and I walked on in a dream, awakened by another garden gate over which a syringa had flourished two months ago. Has heaven a more delectable scent than the remembrance of a syringa in bloom? I asked, and it was on my way home from Klonskech 
that I said to myself, Now, if I go to London to see the house that Steer and Tonks have found in Swan Walk, or to Paris to view the apartment in Boulevard Street, Germain, that Duke Jardin has discovered, I shall not be able to declare my Protestant faith. Why not? I asked. Why not? And the answer came quickly, for there is nobody in London or Paris interested in such a question. So that is why I hesitated to write to my friends to announce my departure from Dublin, and the source of the lie that I told John on the night he invited me to walk with him down the Pembroke Road and back to Northumberland Road over the Canal Bridge before going to bed. How little do we know ourselves? I muttered, and again I walked on, this time my mind awake and myself not a little frightened. For if it seemed certain that I was prompted by an unworthy motive to declare myself a Protestant, I can I accept Protestantism wholeheartedly? I asked, and I remembered John Eglinton's words. The Archbishop is, will certainly ask you if you can accept the divinity of our Lord. He will ask too if I can accept the resurrection of the body until I reached Eli Place. I do not cease to seek in my memory for the passage of Corinthians, in which St. Paul is at pains to elucidate the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. The Apostle is anxious to convince his converts and himself. He is troubled by doubts, doubts that my Archbishop does not share for reasons he has discovered, and his reasons he will lay before me fully. All will then be well. <clears throat> uh, where did I just read that? All will then be well. Hereupon I walked to the writing table and wrote, Your Grace, for the last three years since I have come to live in Ireland, my thoughts have been directed towards religion, and I have come to see that Christianity as its purest form is to be found in the Anglican rather than the Church of Rome. I am anxious to become a member of your church and shall be glad to hear from your Grace regarding the steps I may take. After addressing the letter, I stood for a long time admiring it and trying to collect my thoughts sufficiently to write whether I should take the letter to His Grace's house and drop it off in the mailbox myself, or post it in the pillar. It should come to him through the post, I said, and after posting it, I returned home and slept easier that night, and after breakfast my thoughts were at once to the book, and by midday many spurious passages had been discovered, for instance, that very commonplace reeking of bishop passage, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. <laughs> and I will give unto the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt lose on earth shall be lost in heaven. A passage so obviously needful for the founding of a church that the policeman around the corner, if one were to bring him in, would say, Well, sir, it doesn't look like much much like the genuine article, does it? We'd call it a fake up at the station. Yes, of course, a fake. And the most blatant fake. It was necessary to have Christ's authority for the apostolic succession and the right to collect money, to lay down the law, to judge others. All the things that Christ expressly declared should not be done. And in my indignation, I compared the ordinary Christians who uh, accepted this piece of 
eclecticism as Christ's words to the artistic people we meet every day who admire equally Botticelli, Byrne, Jones, Coro, Sir Alfred East, Turgenev, and Mrs. Humphrey Ward. Um, the common man, I said, makes the same mess of pottage out of religion as he does out of art. This sad thought caused me to drop into a long meditation, and I remember on awakening at the passage from Matthew, the utility of which the policeman read the corner could not fail to see had been improved upon the bishop who wrote about 150 years after the crucifixion. The need for a more explicit text than the one from Matthew has been begun to be felt, and the bishop supplied, Whoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. Whoever sins ye retain, they are retained. And so by the fathers, for instance, be not angry with thy brothers without just cause. Without just cause degrades Christ. These three words turn him into a reasonable and commonplace person. It will be interesting, Miss Goff, to have the Archbishop's opinion upon these texts when I get back to the palace. She answered that it would be indeed interesting and began to wonder why Dr. Peacock had delayed to answer my letter. My letter was one that needed my answer by return post, for his grace cannot be without knowledge of this anxiety of mind that religious questions cause those who are sincerely religious, anxious at all costs to themselves to arrive at the truth. <laughs> Miss Goff's explanation was that this grace might not be at the palace, and this seeming to me not unlikely, for we were in September and the month was a fine one. I opened my Bible and turned to the Acts, which is a, probably the earliest Christian document I read, but a certain man named Ananias was with Sapphire, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy and brought a certain part, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Whether Peter was even ever bishop of Rome, is a matter on which ecclesiastical authorities are undecided, but there can be no doubt that he was and is and ever will be parish priest in the county of Galloway. Stephen was stoned in the streets of Jerusalem, and Paul standing by, I said, and rushed into the story of Paul's conversation on the road to Damascus. It was not, however, until Paul bade goodbye to his disciples and friends at Euphesus that he won all by operation and instinctive sympathy. In this most beautiful farewell, one of the most moving and touching things in literature, Paul takes out his bosom, takes us to his bosom. Two thousand years cannot separate us. We become one with Paul and glorify God in him. And these noble verses are not Paul's single contribution to the Acts. He is so evident in these narratives of adventure that it is difficult to imagine how they came to be attributed to Luke. The narrative of the shipwreck and the journey to Rome could only have been written by a man of literary genius, 
and there are never two at the same time. The trial at Caesar's Sarah is Paul's own rendering of his defence. Of course it is. And I wondered how anyone could have entertained, even for a moment, the notion that Luke made it up. How did he make it up? From heresy. Blind men and deaf, knowing nothing of the art of writing, Luke may have edited Paul's manuscripts and his recension may be the farewell of Euphesus, the trial of Caesarea, and the journey to Rome, but it is certain that Paul's voice and no other voice is heard in these narratives, and it is a voice that is always distinguishable from every other voice. We do not hear in it, it in the epistle to the Hebrews, nor do we hear it in the 13th chapter of the first Corinthians, a chapter which I will have no hesitation whatever in taking from Paul and attributing to a disciple of John's. But I do not know if there, if any other exegetist was, has rejected this chapter. Many have rejected the epistles and the Ephesians and Philippians, the first and second Corinthians, but it seems to me that I hear Paul's voice in all of these. The Archbishop will no doubt be surprised that I should admit so much. All will go well if he doesn't press upon me. The Epistle to the Hebrews. The postman's knock startled me out of my meditation, and Teresa brought me his grace's letter on a silver salver. Treasured it was for many years lost, unfortunately, as were some of Pater's letters. Dr. Hancock began his letter by explaining that he was staying in the seaside with his family, and there had been some delay at the palace in forwarding my letter, his confession to a great joy on hearing that my coming to Ireland had been the means of leading me back to Christ. And he admitted, I think, that there might be many little points <clears throat> which he would be able to clear up for me, but as he was not returning to Dublin for some weeks, the most natural course, he said, was to send my letter to my parish priest who would call upon me. The words parish priest always seemed to me to savour of Rome and the Archbishop's letter slipped from my fingers and I sat for a long time thinking of what this Archbishop was like. His name conveyed the idea of a tall formal man and perhaps the interview would have been a very stiff and formal affair, myself and the Archbishop on each side of the mahogany table covered with papers and piles of letters held together by elastic bands. My parish priest and the Reverend Gilbert Mahaffey had been my neighbour for a long time, and rectory was number 13 Eli Place, one door from the great iron gateway that divides my little cul-de-sac from Eli Place. He was known... Oops, I just lost my place completely. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm a bit sniffly. He was known as a man of the very kindliest disposition. I had often heard Gill speak of his work among the poor, of his effusive enthusiasm and, gen and energy. A rare soul, I had often said, as he passed me on his charitable errands, absorbed in his thoughts, his short legs moving so quickly under his long frock coat button to the chin, that if he seemed to be running, I could recall the high shoulders showing straight and pointed, the wide head shaded by the soft felt that the large straight nose, the cheeks and chin covered with a soft grey beard and 
kindly eyes. I said that always seems to be on the lookout for somebody's somebody's trouble. Gilbert Mahaffey's appearance had appealed to me, winning me before a word had been exchanged between us all the same. I was conscious of a little resentment. He had never called upon me. He looked the other way when we passed in the street, treating me exactly like poor Cunningham. It seemed to me that he should have called upon me when I came to Dublin first and not waited for the Archbishop to tell him to call. However, there it was. He was coming to see me and taking up the New Testament once more. I fell to thinking that what his literary and critical qualifications were. A good man he certainly is, but from his appearance one would hardly credit him with a subtle mind, and a subtle mind seemed to be necessary in my case. We are safe if we admit that Jesus was God and was sent by his Father into the world to atone by his death on the cross for the sins of men. But Jesus, in his own words, seems to deny the enormous pretensions that the ecclesiastics would cast upon him. In Matthew, he says, Why dost thou call me good? None is good but God, but no less striking words were uttered by him on the cross. My God, why hast thou abandoned me? The colonel had once reminded me that Jesus had said before Abraham was, I am, but the Oriental spoke in the images, and it was easy to understand that we are all here were before Abraham, that is to say, before Abraham existed in the flesh. But the words, why dost thou call me good? None is good but God seemed to me very difficult to explain away, and the words spoken on the cross even more so, nor is it very clear that Paul believed in a separate divinity of Christ. Christ will disappear in the end and be merged into his father, a puzzling view of Christian divinity, I said, and sat for a while looking into the fire, thinking how pleasant it would be if Mahaffey were here, were we two sitting on either side of the fire, our Bibles on our knees, it was the next day that my servant told me the Reverend Doc, Mr. Mahaffey had called. Retreat is now out of the question, I said. Tomorrow he'll call again, or perhaps he'll wait for me to return his call, and for the moment, for, and for me to return it will be more polite. But it is impossible to wait till tomorrow. I must talk the matter out with somebody. Why not with Sir Thornley? Only he is generally occupied with patience at this hour. You know, I've been thinking joining the Church of Ireland for some time. So have, I have heard it said, but I thought it was one of your jokes. One doesn't choose such subjects for joking, and I showed him the Archbishop's letter. Now, what is to be done? The Reverend Gilbert Mahaffey called this afternoon, and he'll call tomorrow if I don't return his visit. It will be better, I think, to call upon him this evening and get it over. Only I can't think what he'll say to me. Can you give me any idea? He'll ask you if you abjure the errors of Rome. He can't ask that, because I never believed in Rome. Do you think he'll ask me to say a prayer with him? Sir Thornley began to laugh, and his laughter shocked me a little, but I don't get up to leave the room until he said, Did Archbishop send you an order for coals and blankets? I wonder how you, who are a Protestant and respect your religion, I wonder what your co-religionist, without attempting to finish my sentence, I walked out of the room abruptly and opened the hall door, but I had to draw back into the hall for Gilbert Mahaffey was coming down the Hume Street and thinking of him in his strenuous, useful life. I came to be ashamed of the disappointment I experienced when the Archbishop had referred to my spiritual needs 
to him instead of undertaking them himself. No man, I said, I am more likely to inspire in me the faith I am seeking. After dinner, I will call upon him. My dinner was hardly tasted that evening. I so perturbed I was I, and I still can recall the glow behind the houses as I went towards the gateway. Is Mr. Maffey home at, at home? Yes, sir. Portentous words, and the study itself portentous in its simplicity. I had just time to look over the great writing table covered with papers, all... On parochial business, I said before he entered. He came running into the room, his eyes and his hands welcoming me. I'm so glad to see you. We have lived near each other for a long time, I answered, and I have often wished to know you, Mr. Hamahaffey. Yes, his grace asked me to call. Yes, this, I am. In moments of great mental excitement, one notices everything. Mr. Hamahaffey's Man, manner of saying yes is trying to turn the word from a monosyllable to a dissyllable and his habit of rubbing his hands after the pronunciation struck me and very nervously I began to explain that I had written to the Archbishop saying that since I had come to live in Ireland his grace sent me your letter yes sis. you see Mr. Maffey in England, one has an, an opportunity to, of noticing the evil influence of the Church of Rome. It wasn't until I came here. It seems to me that I had better tell him of my great discovery, the illiteracy of Rome since the Reformation. I did without, however, interesting him very deeply. He is more interested in the theological side of the question, I said to myself, and sought a transitional phrase. But before finding one, Mr. Matthew mentioned Newman, and I told him that Newman can hardly write English at all at which he showed me some surprise. The Roman Church relies upon its converts. After two or three generations of Catholicism, the intelligence dies. It was plain to me that the conversation was not altogether to his taste and thinking to interest him. I said, you know, Cardinal Manning was of this opinion. He told a friend of mine that he was glad he had been brought up Protestant. Did he? I didn't know that. And my thoughts running on my head... I began to describe a new utopia estate so well ordered that no one in it was allowed to be a papist unless he or she could prove some bodily or mental infirmity or until he or she had attained a certain age which put them beyond the business of the world. The age 70, perhaps, the earliest at which a conversion would be illegal. A sort of spiritual old age pension scheme, I said, and a picture rose up from before my mind of a crowd of young and old, all inferior, physical and intellectually struggling, round the door of the Roman Catholic Church with papers in their hands in the, on the first Friday of every month. <clears throat> <clears throat> it's quite possible, Mr. Moore, that there is no more intelligence in Protestantism than in Catholicism, but the question before us is hardly one of literature. In the, early, in the letter to His Grace, I understood... You say that Christianity is to be found in its purest form in the Anglican Church. We are concerned really with spiritual matter rather than with atheistic terms. You are quite right. Perhaps I was wrong, but a sense of humor does not preclude sincerity and many reasons lead one towards spiritual truth. If I introduced aesthetics into our conversation, it was because I have spoken to Catholics on this matter and they have always, with one exception, a convert, Failed to put the case as you did, and that religion really has nothing to do with ascetics. The interview had certainly taken an unexpected turn and an unfortunate one, and while I was thinking of something to say to Mr. Mahaffey, he asked me suddenly if he were to understand that I accepted the divinity of our Lord. Of course I am aware that you accept the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ in a very literal sense, but I, is it sure that we do not mean the same thing in the end? All the things tend towards God, and in its highest nature is God and nearest God, and certainly Jesus Christ, the noblest human being in many respects that ever lived. 
A cloud had come onto his face, and seeing that it was deepening, I became more sincere in the sense that I tried to get nearer to the truth. I should like to believe, as you do, to share your belief. And you will, he said, you will be with us one of these days if you aren't with us wholly today. And we talked of religious subjects until it was time for me to go. Then he asked me to come again. I promised to do so in a few days and went away asking myself if it was ever likely that I should be able to answer truthfully and say, yes, I believe in the divinity of Christ as you do. I should have to know exactly what he meant. And it is doubtful if he would be able to tell me, for we cannot understand God, and if we cannot understand what God is, how can we how what how who how is it that we speak of the Son of God? Saint Paul himself had no conception of the Trinity of Christ to God, to equal Father. How is that? If Paul's words, Christ will disappear at the end of measure of his father, is it all very puzzling? A few days later, I again went to see Mr. Murphy, and I remember telling him that I had been questioning myself on the subject of Christ's divinity. You see, Mr. Murphy, one doesn't know what one believes. No one thinks alike. No one man can tell his soul to another sufficient belief in the more divinity of Christ a human being. You say in your letter and Archbishop that you wish to join the communion of the Anglican Church, and belief of the communion is so vague as yours, Mr. Moore. We believe that Christ, the Son of God, and that came into the world to redeem the world from sin that he died on the cross and rose three days afterwards from the dead, ascended to heaven. Tolstoy didn't believe in the physical resurrection, and it may be doubted if St. Paul believed in it, yet you will not deny that Tolstoy was a Christian. He was a Christian, no doubt, but not in the full sense of the word as we understand it. While St. Paul, I take my stand upon Paul, Mr. Maffey, you, he seems like to have had very little sense of the Trinity. Paul was a Unitarian. The passage in which he says that Christ will disappear in the end to be merged into his father. We wrangled about text for a long time, Matthew quoting me, I quoting another. Until it seemed impolite for me to press my point further, and accepting him as an authority, I bade him good night, asking him when I might see him again. Three days afterwards, I was again at rectory, and we talked for an hour together and parted on the same terms. I shall be in tomorrow evening. Will you come to see me? I promised I would, and all the time I felt that this evening would not end without his asking me to say a prayer with him, and the thought of the prayer haunted me all the while speaking to him, and when I rose to go, long-expected words came, Will you say a prayer with me? He went down on his knees and repeated the Lord's prayers after him. I have been dreading this prayer all week, and I could hardly conquer my fear, and at the same time a force behind myself prompted me to you. Let me give you a prayer book, he said, and I returned home to read it absorbed in a deep emotion for the prayer said with Mr. Murphy had come out of my heart and a memory of it and continued to burn, shedding a soft radiance, how happy I am. What a blessed peace this is. My difficulties have, may have melted away and it no longer seems to matter to me whether the world thinks me a Catholic or a Protestant. I am with Christ. But the storm of life is never over until it ceases forever and because a week had gone by a copy of my Irish an Irish review came to me containing a criticism of my book The Untilled Field himself a Catholic were the words that upset my mental balance forcing me into an uncontrollable rage is this shame eternal I cried Of what use is writing? I have been writing all my life and never had hand, act, or part. Very little emotion robs me of my words, and with a great storm raging in my breast, I walked across the room, conscious of a great injustice had been done to me merely because my father was a papist, and I had to remain one despite long protests and patience. 
not one only this paper calls me Catholic, but Edward, my most intimate friend, calls me one. His words are, you are a bad Catholic, but you are a Catholic. And he's persistent in those words, though, according to the Catholic Church, I am not one, never having acquiesced in any of its dogmas. He continues to reiterate this shameful accusation, shameful to me at least, that his mind is so stultified and superstitious that he doesn't remember that those who do not confess and communicate cease to belong to the Roman Church. I believe that remains that to be the rule, and if I remind him of the face becomes overcast, any thought of transgression frightens him, but so paralyzed that the mind he clings to the base superstition that life is water poured on the head of the infant of the Catholic Church, and the child remains a Catholic just as a child born of black parents remains a N-word. No matter what country he is born in or the nationality he elects, now I wonder if it be orthodox to hold that a sacrament confers benefits on the recipient without some cooperation on the part of his the recipient. I suppose that his Roman Catholic doctrine, even if the recipient protests the sacrament overrules his objections, we live in a mad world, my masters, but I think Edward goes a step further than Catholic doctrine warrants him too. He seems to hold that Catholic baptism confers perpetual Catholicism on the individual, I do this theology are wrong. If you are a Catholic, why don't you become a Protestant? He said, until you are, I corrected him. One doesn't become a Protestant. And I said, he, but the correction was wasted. His theological knowledge is slight, but he knows the country, his own phrase. I know the country, and in Ireland, one must be one or the other. A light seemed to break in my mind suddenly. I remember, though, the welcome the priest had given to Edward VII when he came to Ireland had not been pleased with patriotic Gaelic League and occurred to me that I might get a nice revenge of the words himself of Catholic if I were to write to the Irish Times declaring that I had passed from the Church of Rome to the Church of Ireland, shocked beyond measure at the lack of patriotism in the Irish priests. Nothing will annoy them more, and in this I shall not be writing a lie. Magicians have called them, and with great reason, the magical powers are in the great in politics as in religion, and haven't they persuaded Ireland to accept them as patriots? I wrote for an hour and then went out in search of A.E. It is essential to consult A.E. on every matter of importance, and the matter on which I was about to consult him seemed to me of the highest importance. He, the night was Thursday, and every Thursday night, after finishing the last pages of the homestead, he goes to the Hermetic Society uh, to re- teach till 11 o'clock, but then the rooms were not known to me and I must have met a member of society who directed me to the house of Dawson Street, a great decaying building let out in rooms traversed with dusty parishes intersected by innumerable staircases. And through this great ramshackle, I wondered, losing myself again. The doors were numbered by a number. It seemed undiscoverable last, at least, of the assured, earnest face, and some of the faces of the men and women were lost in the shadows. <laughs> he bade me welcome and continued to teach as if I had not been there, but he appealed to me on one occasion, but the subject was foreign to me, and it was impossible to detach my thoughts from the business on which I had come to speak to him. It seemed as if his disciples would never leave. The last struggles clung about him, and I wondered why he did not send them away. But A.E. never tries to rid himself of anybody, not even the most importunate. At last the door closed, and I was free to tell him that it was impossible for me to bear with this constantly recurring imputation of Catholicism any longer. I have, a, I have written a letter, I said, which should bring it to an end and forever, but before publishing it I should like to show it to you. It may contain things of which you would not approve. The pages were spread upon the table, and A.E. began to suggest emendations. 
The phrases I had written would wound many people, and A.E. is instinctively against wounding anybody, but his emendations seemed to me to destroy the character of my letter, and I said, A.E., I can't accept your alterations. It has come to me to write this letter. You see, I am speaking out of a profound conviction. Then, my dear Moore, if you feel the necessity of speech as much as that, and the conviction is within you, it is not for me to advise you. You have been advised already. And that is the end of the f- worst piece of shit I've ever fucking seen in my whole goddamn fucking life. See you tomorrow.